Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Lord, I think I would echo Mary's prayer that I'm not sure what you're up to today fully. But I think at least in part, what's happening is your people are delighting in you. There's joy in the house, and that joy is in your presence. That joy is the joy of Psalm 16 that says, In your presence is fullness of joy, your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I think at least one thing that's happening today is we're delighting in you. I don't think that's all, though. I think that we are also fighting. There's warfare taking place in here. We fight through delight. We fight through dependence. We fight the war against sin, against evil, against despair, against depression, against anxiety. We fight all of those attacks, all of those realities of the the broken world in which we still live, we fight with praise, we fight with delight, we fight with joy. And so, Lord, I pray that this same spirit of worship that I'm so grateful for, would you just take a minute and thank the Lord that we have experienced this today? Come on, just express your gratitude. Yeah, it's right for us to do that. Lord, we're so grateful that you've moved in this way, that you've moved in our hearts And we've expressed this joy and delight through song. And now we're going to turn our attention to your word. We're going to focus our minds, not just in an academic way, not in an intellectual way only, but we are going to search for treasure. We're going to worship as we walk through the word. I just, I prophesy that over us now over our minds, over our ears, and over our hearts that we would worship as we dig, we would worship as we learn, and that, Lord, this would spill over as we leave this place and go as your people into a dark world as your light. We thank you in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Amen. Um, I do want to welcome visitors that are here with us today. We're so glad that you're here, glad that you're here to worship with us. We welcome you, welcome our guest res church that are here with us today. We long to connect with you and the mechanism that we have in place, and I call it that because that's what it is, it helps us connect with you and you with us is a long green card on the seat back in front of you. It's called our connection card. If you would fill that out, take it to the welcome desk that's in the back, my left, your right corner of the sanctuary. We would love to meet you after service. Romans chapter seven, we're in a study through the book of Romans. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'll start with verse seven in just a minute. Um, But let me lead us up to where we are. Let me, let me talk about where we are. You might remember, if you were here with us when we began this study through Romans, that the book of Romans, Paul opens this letter with a, kind of a good news, bad news situation. 
you guys remember that, and we talked about that, is that Paul, probably one of the most famous verses in all of Romans is in chapter 1 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, right? Very famous word, uh, verse. And when we studied that passage, I asked the question, I wonder why Paul chose the word ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If I'm excited about something, that's not a word that I use, Right? If, if I'm really passionate about something, I don't typically talk about it as something I'm not ashamed of. I might say, well, I'm really excited about the gospel. I'm really motivated to share the gospel with you. I'm passionate about this great thing called the gospel. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Here's what we learned. is that the gospel is not trivial. Right? It's not this thing that we can sort of look at casually and go, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. I think I'll have some of that. Or the gospel, uh, yeah, that sounds good. Let me tack that on to my life with all the other good things in my life as though it's on an equal playing field with everything else we might call good. No, because Paul says, the next verse, the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We got a lot of problems in our world, don't we? We have sickness, we have death, we have terrorism, we have war, we have political strife, we have sex trafficking. All of those things create global suffering for mankind, but they all pale in comparison to our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is God. God and his wrath against unrighteousness, his righteous wrath and judgment against unrighteousness. And when we wrestled with that, we talked about that, this is the place we came to, a fall on your face kind of desperation. Who's going to save us from wrath? Who's going to do that? Not the moralist. It's not the moral, it's not the person who tries to play this compare and contrast game with, you know, other people's sin. Well, I don't sin as much as they do. Or I don't sin like that or those people. So God's probably going to give me a pass. Paul addresses that and says, no, 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 moralist, it's not going to work. The religious person's not going to save us. Religious tradition and activity's not going to save us. Paul deals with that. And any attempt on our own to keep the law of God... It's not going to work either. So we came to this place of desperation, and Paul then gave us the good news. There is salvation. There is justification apart from the works of the law. There is salvation that comes by way of grace through faith, as God gives us the righteousness of Christ. That's just another way to talk about the fact that when Jesus During his earthly ministry, he batted a thousand. He kept God's law perfectly. And when we, by grace through faith, trust in him, we are gifted the righteousness of Christ. Right? And the good news just kept getting better, didn't it? Because then Paul said, guess what? Not only have you been made righteous and justified, but the power of sin has been broken over you. The power of sin's been broken over you. You're no longer enslaved to sin. Isn't that good news, right? And Paul began to introduce to us this new kind of life that we share in Christ. And this is where we left off last week. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. 
But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We talked about that last week. I don't have time to review it. But in short, Paul is saying we are no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. That's not how we relate to God. That's not how we live out our sanctification or our growth in holiness or Christ-likeness anymore. It's not through efforts to keep the law. Well, how do we do it, Paul? So now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Paul hasn't unpacked that yet. We're not really sure what that means yet. But we're trying to get our minds around really what Paul said in chapter 6, verse 11, that we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The question is, how do we as Christians, justified by grace through faith, actually have victory over sin? How do we actually win in the battle over sin? We know, we've talked about this, that our desires are transformed. We've got a new nature. We want different things now. So how is it we actually walk in that victory? Let me give you the end from the beginning, and then we're going to dive in. Here's the end. The same kind of desperate place we came to in salvation. I can't save myself. The same kind of desperation that led to salvation is the same kind of desperation we must have in order to live out our sanctification. So guess what we need? We need a little bit of more good news and bad news. You liked the way I said that, didn't you? A little bit of more. We need a little bit of more good news, bad news to help us get to that place of desperation. Verse 7, let's pick up. Having said that we died to the law, Paul says, he's got a question, another question, what shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, law is commandment, righteous and good. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. We're going to go to verse 20, but let's stop right there for a minute. Up to this point, we've only known the law to be the thing that, instead of deterring sin, it aroused it. Right? It's like the meme that I saw the other day. It said, never in the history of calming down have the words calm down ever helped anybody calm down. Anybody identify with that? Right? You get in an argument with your spouse or your best friend or your neighbor and things are getting kind of heated and you say, all right, calm down. It, what happens? It gets worse. <laughs> Not because the words are bad, right? It, it, the words calm down might actually be the thing you need to hear. But somehow, some way, it's not the words calm down that arouse my anger. It's my anger that gets stirred by the words. You with me? 
It's not an apples to apples comparison, but that's what Paul is talking about when it comes to the law is that this is what the law does. Now you might be saying to yourself or asking yourself, hasn't Paul already talked about this? I mean, we've already talked, there's been hints along the way that this is what the law does. It arouses sin rather than deters it. Is Paul being redundant? What do you think? Yes, you just somebody say, yeah, I think he's being redundant. I don't think so, and here's why. Because I think we need to see something here. I think we need to see that the law is not a curse for us. The law is actually a blessing. And there's two ways in which the law blesses us. Here's the first way, okay? The first way the law of God is a blessing. When I talk about the law, when Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the moral law of God. We're not talking about ceremonial law, sacrificial system. We're talking about the moral law of God. Do not covet. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. You with me? Why is that a blessing for us and not a curse? Here's the first thing Paul says, is that the law brings about the knowledge of sin. It brings about the knowledge of sin. When Paul says the knowledge of sin, he's not talking about our individual acts of sin. He's not talking about what you did yesterday. Okay? He's talking about our sin condition. And here's the interesting thing about it is Paul... He talks about it like it's a power. I'm not, and sometimes, I'm, if I'm honest, I'm not sure what to do with that. He talks about it like it's a power, like it's a force. He almost personifies it. See, when the law says don't covet, it's not that God through his law says, all right, don't covet, Jonathan or Ira. Don't covet. It's not that the law says don't covet, and then all of a sudden we start coveting. What it is is that the law reveals that there's something underneath our coveting. There's something that's producing our coveting. There's something in you and there's something in me that when we hear don't covet, it produces all kinds of desires for things that other people have that we don't. And had it not been for the law, I wouldn't even know that about myself. Right? I wouldn't even know that about myself if it were not for the law. So here's what it reveals. The law reveals this sin condition. There's two ways to think about our sin condition. One is pre-salvation. Before you were saved, the right way to think about your sin condition is to talk about your depravity, your inability to save yourself, your fallenness. After salvation, here's the best way I think for us to understand our sin condition. It's the remaining corruption in us after salvation. Here's what I mean by that. After salvation, we're justified by grace through faith. We're given the spirit of God. We have a new nature. We have new desires. Everybody agree on that? But there remains in me and there remains in you the ability to sin. Would anybody deny that you still have the ability to sin? Raise your hand. You still have the ability to sin. You want some good news? One day that won't be the case. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> For this perishable body, the word perishable means corruptible, 
my body, my flesh, is corruptible. It must put on imperishable or incorruptible, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you die, if you're saved, when you die or Christ returns, you're going to get a new body. And that new body will never die. Why? Because it's incapable of sinning. Isn't that good news? That's amazing news is that one day the sin fight will be over. I need to know that. You need to know that. You are going to fight for the rest of your life sin and temptation in this life. But one day corruptible is going to give way to incorruptible. Praise be to God. We're very familiar with our ability to still sin, aren't we? You know what we're not so familiar with? Is that now in Christ, and I'm going to rattle some cages, I think. Now in Christ, do you realize that we have the ability to still sin? We actually have the ability to not sin? I thought you might be afraid to amen that. Think about what Paul has already told us. He's already told us that's true. He hasn't told us how yet. But he's already told us that's true. Why? Chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound all the more? He basically said that's impossible. We're not going to continue in an abiding habitual relationship with sin. And then in case we tried to dumb that down and say, okay, well, maybe I'm just doomed to occasionally sin. Paul said, nope, that's ludicrous too. I could bring any Christian in here up on this platform and say and ask you this question. Do you think you could not sin for the next 30 seconds? What would you say? Oh, yeah, I can do that. What else you got? Piece of cake. 30 seconds. You think you could do that for an hour? Um, yeah, I could do Could you do that for a day? Where does it end? Right? The point is, and listen, we're going to have to get all the way to the end of chapter 8 before we get our minds, I've been telling you this, before we get our minds fully around how. Will we live completely sin-free in this life? Probably not. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. You know what the title of my message is? Can I really live sin-free? Here's how God, in his great wisdom, is leading us to get our minds open and around this notion that he's really done something so powerful that we really can't have victory over sin. It starts with the law, the law that tells me I don't just have a problem with acts of sin. I've got a sin condition. And the law is actually blessing me by revealing that to me. Here's the second thing the law does to bless me. The second thing the law does to bless me is that it actually reveals how evil and wicked and deadly 
this sin condition is. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good bring death to me? So we got another question. Paul's already said the law's not sinful. The law is good. It does a good thing. It makes known your sin condition. But when it makes known that sin condition, it, the thing that promises me life only produces death. So the next question then is, well, did the law kill me? No, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that what? Watch this. That sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Did the law kill me? No. It just showed me how deadly sin is. How deadly is it? It's so deadly that it takes what's meant to be a blessing for me and turns it into a curse. Don't covet. And all of a sudden, sin, seizing that opportunity, produces in me all kinds of covetousness. The law blessed us by not only making our sin condition known, but it's blessed us by making us aware of just how deadly, evil, wicked our sin condition is. Here's what happens in the shadows. Is the enemy convinces us it's not that bad. You're not hurting anybody. God's going to give you grace. He's going to pass over you. He's going to be lenient towards you. Your sin's not as bad as this other person, and you, you worshiped really good at church, so just don't worry about that. We coddle it. We treat it like a, a little pet that we caress, and we just don't. And I think we do that because we don't know how to kill it. But what the law of God does Don't despise the law. Don't treat it with contempt. The fact that Jesus said, men and women alike, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at another with lust in your heart, you've already done it. Don't despise those words from Jesus. Don't run from them. Don't run from the law of God when it puts its finger on those dark places and shines the light. God is actually blessing you by making it known to you just how deadly this sin condition is. But can I give you some good news? There's some bad news. Here's some good news. If you see that, if you see it, if you see that the law is made known to me a sin condition that I have and it's made known to me just how deadly that sin condition is, if you see that, and there's that, remember we talked about that sour taste that we as Christians now have for sin. We talk about the fact that when we sin, we feel shame. If you see that and you feel that, did you know that is evidence in and of itself of salvation? It is evidence in and of itself of salvation. Why do you say that, Bradley? Ephesians 2, I've read this many times, I'm going to read it again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together by grace you have been saved. Dead is dead. Paul said in Romans 7, apart from the law, sin lies dead in me. In other words, I'm not even conscious of my sin condition and how deadly it is apart from a work of grace and of the Spirit. How many of you have seen the movie The Sixth Sense? If you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. There's this little boy in the movie, and he's got a big problem. And there's a child psychologist that's trying to help this little boy with his big, big problem, and he's trying to get to the root of what's going on with him. And finally, the little boy confesses to the psychologist. He says, I see dead people. And in the story, in the movie, these dead people that he sees are walking around and they're trying to rectify some injustice that was done to them during their life. And they want the little boy to help him. And he says to the psychiatrist, he says, I see dead people, but they don't know they're dead. And what's funny about the movie, funny I say, is that the very child psychologist that's trying to help him is dead and he doesn't know it. And he doesn't figure it out to the end of the movie. Dead people don't know they're dead. So when the law of God, when the word of God reveals to you your sin condition and it reveals to you just how deadly that sin condition is, you know what you ought to do? Give thanks. When you see it, when you feel it, when you feel that sour taste of death in your soul because of your sin, that is God's kindness to you leading you to repentance. Dead people don't know they're dead. Whew, I'm running out of time. Real quick, Jesus talked about this. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, said, Truly I say to you, he's talking to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's life under God's rule. It's life according to his law. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again by the Spirit, you won't even see it. You won't even see the law revealing your sin condition. You won't even see the deadly nature of your sin condition. You've got to depend on the Spirit to do something radical in you. Because why? Verse 19, same chapter. He said, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, the same kind of desperation that happens when we're awakened to our need for grace and the righteousness of Christ 
is the same kind of desperation that's going to lead us to avail ourselves to the power and the resource God has given us to live holy, transformed lives. You know, as a pastor, I often find myself meeting with people, married couples, husbands and wives, that are in very difficult situations. And here's what we often do, and this is true not only in marriage, but it's true in a lot of other areas of our lives, is that we endeavor to justify our sin because of the actions of others against us. And what husbands and wives often struggle, Christians' husbands and wives struggle to open their minds to, is that God has actually resourced us all to avail ourselves to his power and spirit in such a way that we can actually overcome sin regardless of what somebody else is doing, particularly our spouse. Because here's what's true of us, okay? We have a new nature, don't we? We have new desires. Where I was once the enemy of God, now I delight in his law. I want to not covet what I want. I want to overcome lust. I want to overcome my anger. I want to overcome bitterness. I want to overcome materialism and greed and covetousness. I want to be free from that. I don't want that. I want the righteousness of God. Can I get an amen from the church? That's what we want. Now, here we go. Verse 15. For I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, if I'm still sinning and I hate that, I'm agreeing that the law is good. That's evidence of my transformed desires. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin or that remaining corruption that still dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, I do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who who do it. You get kind of tongue-tied reading this, but sin that dwells within me. Would anybody raise their hand and say they identify with Paul right here? We'll try it again. Anybody raise their hand and say they identify with Paul right here? I love the law. The law's good. It tastes good to me. I want that righteousness. I hunger for it. I thirst for it. And yet here's the key verse, I think, in this text when it comes to our sanctification. Verse 18 again. But I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Notice that Paul is, he's being so transparent here, isn't he? He's acknowledging his struggle, but notice also he's not coming from a place of hopelessness. He says, In my flesh, in this body, 
I lack the ability to do what I now want. I've got transformed desires, but in this body in which remains corruption, I lack the ability to live that out. And here's where a lot of Christians for centuries have gone wrong with Romans chapter 7. Is they read the end of chapter 7 and they wrongly conclude that though my justification is secure by grace through faith, righteousness of Christ, I'm doomed to lose in the battle over sin more often than I'm not. Because here's Paul saying, I can't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. It's a wrong conclusion. That's not what Paul is saying. When you say it out loud, just don't say it, but just think this. We had no ability on our own to save ourselves and justify ourselves. So we needed a savior. We needed a rescuer. And God came to the rescue and he provided what we could not provide for ourselves. Amen? That's salvation. We understand that. But when it comes to sanctification, do you really think that God would transform us and give us new desires and then leave us to depend on our flesh to live out those desires alone. See, this is where we come to that, yet again, that fall on your face kind of desperation. God, I want you. I want what is right. I want righteousness. I want to keep the law. But I lack in my flesh the ability to carry it out. We're going to leave you a little hanging today. Because Paul, I think Paul has made it clear that victory over sin is possible. He hasn't fully unpacked yet how that's going to happen. As we journey with Paul through the end of chapter 8, He's going to show us the power and the resource that God has given us to move beyond the place of knowing what we long to do and lacking the ability to do it. But in an effort to not leave you hanging too much, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Here's where we're going. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul, that's the kind of power that lives in me now. There's a resource so great, and I... I hesitate to use that word because, you know, the Holy Spirit's not an it or a force. He's a person. This person of our triune God that lives within us, that had the power to call Jesus out of the tomb, do you not think that he could give such life to these mortal bodies, such power to this weak flesh? That if we could somehow stay in step with him, that we could consistently 
we could continuously actually live out the new desires that we have in God, in Christ. You think that's possible? Can I really live sin free? It's not our performance that determines God's verdict. It's God's verdict over our lives that determines our performance. We live from justification. We're not trying to measure up anymore. But God has given us power, given us new desires and power that if we could avail ourselves to that, if we could get desperately dependent think we're going to see that it's actually possible for you to have victory over sin. So here's, here's my challenge for us today, okay? Two things. We're going to celebrate, just a minute, as our praise team leads us, we're going to celebrate the victory of Christ in his death and resurrection. And here's what I want us to do, is I want us to think, want us to be intentional with our thoughts as we sing about Christ's victory, that that victory not only brings about our justification, but it opens the door for the power we need to walk out our sanctification. Amen? So I want you to sing and celebrate that. Even if you're in the throes of the battle that you feel like you're losing over sin, celebrate the victory that you know Christ won, not only for your salvation, but for your sanctification. And then here's the second thing. As you go about this week, we're going to pick back up at the end of seven next Sunday. I want you to meditate. I'm going to do the same thing. Let's meditate on our new condition. What is that new condition? What do we know about it so far? Here's what we know. God has saved us and he's transformed us. And we have new desires. But in our flesh, in our bodies... We lack the resources and the ability to consistently live those out. And as you meditate on that, I want you to welcome. I'm going to try to do this too. We can depend on the Spirit. Let's welcome that feeling of desperation, right? Welcome it. That desperation that gave rise to the faith that you reached for mercy and you reached for grace, you reached for righteousness in Christ, that same kind of desperation in salvation, let God by his spirit birth it in you for holiness. That you're not just sort of trying to discipline yourself, but you're desperate for God to give you the power to live out these new desires. I'm telling you, folks, if we get that desperation, we're going to go leaping and jumping through chapter 8. I said we're going to go leaping and jumping through chapter 8. As we hear Paul say, look, there's a new way to live. The Christian life is a supernatural kind of life. So let's celebrate the victory that Christ won. Would you stand with me? Spirit, do what you do. Let your word bear fruit and increase as we worship, as we celebrate the victory of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 
We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.